0: Greetings and welcome once again to the Truth in Print podcast. This is your host, Tim Burbeck. It is February the 6th, a Saturday. We've managed to make it about 5 weeks into 2021. Um so we'll see how that goes from here. <laughs> um the world is it's seemingly less crazy or maybe just the Media is just not reporting the craziness now that we have a new administration, but that's neither here nor there. The world is always going to be crazy, but uh, we're still going to praise God all the same. So last time, um, you know, I talked about the Israelite kingship of Christ. Um, I know that was a bit of a divergence from the stream of thought that I was getting getting with, with Leviticus. Um, But I did want to wrap up some of my thoughts. You know, I explained last time that um, there's another kind of perspective of of the Levitical system that I wanted to get to. The first three episodes were a bit more Christocentric, and that's sort of us inserting our Christocentric points of view into Leviticus. And... You know, it it is good for us to see Christ in throughout the Old Testament. I mean, he did five times in the New Testament claim himself to be the point of the Old Testament. But there's a there's a different flow to the Old Testament that I, I wanted to kind of comment on. Um in in terms of the way that the ancient Israelites viewed the Levitical system. There's a whole world view that the ancient Israelites all the way up to the second temple period Jews viewed the Old Testament or in which they viewed the Old Testament, they have a whole worldview that we really don't adopt as much, or at least not as clearly as Christians today. And so kind of going through these threads that's in Leviticus, I wanted to sort of get into some of those themes and, and open up a little bit about open up I guess a really you could say a can of worms <laughs> about the ancient worldview that ancient Israelites actually had and really the worldview or at least the themes that were prevalent in the ancient near east. So that's what I wanted to get to today, not so much the Christ-centric portion but how did Old Testament Um, Hebrews view the Levitical system. So, in Leviticus, it really starts out with God setting up, officially, Yahweh, setting up an official process by which His people, Israel, can communicate with Him. Now, that's a very... If you're someone who lived in the ancient times during that period that's a very bizarre thing because back then it was you you do not contact god or the gods regardless of you know which god or gods you worshiped back then that was a very dangerous thing gods were dangerous gods were above you you are nothing you are less than rats to the gods but here we have something very different. This dangerous idea is sort of turned around when God begins revealing his law, his law to humanity and Paul goes on if you read Romans that the law was given so that people would know sin um, and so it all it all really kind of starts here through this idea of God. Legitimizing a system in which humans, and more specifically his chosen people, the Israelites, can set up communication, can reach him. So, in the Levitical system, you'll recall that a lot of it deals with impurity. Um, and there's two kinds of impurity there's ritual impurity and then there's moral impurity ritual impur- impurity is a little bit more simple we'll talk about moral impurity a little bit more but ritual impurity is involves the natural unavoidable things for humans they don't arise from moral violations um to quote uh, Klawans, I probably pronounced that wrong It's K-L-A-W-A-N-S From the Journal For the Study of Judaism This is a 1998 article Entitled Idolatry, Incest, and Impurity Moral Definement in Ancient Judaism The quote is It is not sinful to be ritually impure And ritual impurity Does not direct or Does not result directly from sin So ritual Impurity is not something that you've consciously done. It is something that happens to you. Uh, There's several different um, examples. Many of them have to do with loss of fluid or any kind of association with death. Um, Some examples here, there's childbirth, Leviticus chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 8. Uh, skin or scale disease, Leviticus chapter thirteen one through 14, and then Leviticus, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 32, that's um, chapter 13. Um, d- genital discharges, that's loss of fluid, Leviticus chapter 15, verses 1 through 33, and then on to death, or anything associating with death, carcasses of animals, Leviticus chapter 11. And that's 1 through 47 that 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 describes. And then, and even though this is in Numbers, it's still the Levitical system reported. Numbers chapter 19, uh, verses 10 through 22. This is touching a dead corpse. Um, you know, so these, these things are like anything that's loss of blood. Um, that's... Can be associated with, you know, loss of life. Yahweh represents life; he is the source of life. And so, to do anything that involves loss of fluid or loss of life or loss of blood, that makes you ritually impure. Um, so, you know, that sort of solves this idea about, you know, women and menstruating. It's not a sin for women to menstruate. But it does represent the humanity side of women who lose blood. That's loss of life. That, or that represents life, loss of life. That's why it made it ritually impure. It's nothing that, it's nothing that women do. Uh, same thing with touching a corpse. Um, you've associated, in doing so, you've associated yourself with death. That makes you, that makes you ritualistically impure. It's not something you've consciously done. It's not a moral um, deviation or moral violation. What these things do, by adjacently associating yourself with loss of life, loss of blood, or death, is it? It essentially says that you're human. Okay, that's the. It's it's a reminder of your humanity. You're not deity. You have to be made fit for sacred space. The camp was sacred space. The tabernacle was sacred space. You had to be made fit to belong in this space. You know, and the duration of the impurity varies. There's a cleansing process that goes along with each one, so you have to do something to make yourself uh, ritually pure again, you know, once you've become ritually impure. And you'll see verses like, these things shall be forgiven you. So they're not moral offenses. Um, It's simply that you cannot enter Yahweh's presence or his sacred space contaminated ritually. You know, and the other thing that it accomplishes other than, you know, reminding us of our humanity and our non-deity is that it demonstrates the difference between the God of life and every other God, okay? Okay. Yahweh is saying, I am the God of life. Those other gods are false. They are not life. They lead you to death. And so that's the other thing that this kind of fitting process, this vetting process, if you are outside, or if you have become ritually impure, to do these things you have to do to be fit within God's sacred space. Okay, now this is what's called... um, cosmic geometry there's some references to that um, all throughout the old testament and there's this building process that these cosmic geological references reference to sacred space and uh what i mean by building process is that it ends up being ultimately written on our hearts the law written on our hearts we eventually become sacred space as Christians because we inhabit, or the Holy Spirit inhabits us. That's what happened at Pentecost. But these are the things that the Levitical system represented to the ancient Israelite. Okay. Now, I talked about ritual impurity. The other type of impurity is moral impurity. These kinds of things result from the committing of certain prohibited behaviors. So you had in Leviticus 18, that's where the moral law is revealed. Leviticus 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verses 24 through 29, you have sexual transgressions. Um, you know, that, like incest, homosexual behavior, um, you know, marrying, or laying with another man's wife. There there's several examples. Sexual tra- any kind of sexual transgression, anything that's outside the Edenic original vision of one man, one woman who are married for life, anything outside of that is a sexual transgression. Okay. The second general category of prohibited behaviors, and this is a big one, is idolatry. You see that prohibited in Leviticus chapter nineteen, uh, verse thirty-one. Uh, Levit- Leviticus chapter twenty-nine, the first three verses. That describes idolatry, and of course, idolatry, just like sexual transgressions, um, those extend the entire the entire period of the Old Testament. We see that in forms of, you know, like physical idols, but uh, you know, as Christians even today, anything that replaces Christ is an idol anything that draws our heart more than Christ itself is an idol uh, so idolatry is the second major category and the third major category of the moral impurity things that people do that is prohibited is bloodshed or violence um, and again while this is in Numbers the chap- or the book of Numbers this is part of that Levitical system Numbers chapter uh, 35 verses 33 and 34 so that's Described there, And these are frequently described as abominations. These are abominable before God. Um, and these are things that you do. These are things that you commit. And these result in the following defilements, as they're called. You know, the, the person who does such thing, you know, that the person who does that, and this is moral law, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24. Um, so the person is defiled. The land itself is defiled. That's the next verse, verse 25. And then you see this again in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 17. And then God's sanctuary is defiled when this behavior is committed. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 3, and then Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 11. And these kind of defilements, the result of this is being expelled from God's presence or eliminated like the death penalty. You know, that's why you have these sort of um, punishments like death that seem sort of bizarrely disproportionate to us as Christians, as Western Christians today. But in ancient Israel, this was everything. You know, you were either in God's camp or you were out. You were expelled or you were you faced God's judgment, which is death, a commandment that is death. You know, these, these are things Yahweh's people don't do. It's what people who follow the other gods do. You don't do that here. That's the message. That's what people of the other nations do in these major three categories, sexual transgressions, idolatry, violence or bloodshed. You don't do them here. That's what the other nations do, okay? And you see that these things are specifically connected to other gods, and I'll make a small comment later on on that, but these kind of behaviors are specifically connected to the other gods. Uh, Moral violations specifically are connected to idolatrous people. Put another way, if you do these things... You demonstrate to the other nations that you live like them. Okay? You are not set apart from them. You are estranged from Yahweh. Uh, And this is, like I mentioned last time, I, I talked about how Leviticus actually looks back into Genesis. That was the major point of the fall, is that rebellion. The punishment for that was estrangement from God. And in many ways, this idea is eschatological, meaning it, it, it forecasts to the end times um, when Christ returns, when God, when Yahweh returns in physical form to gather His people for the new heaven and the new earth. If you're not of God's people, if your heart is directed towards these things, then you will remain estranged from God forever you will not and cannot bring them into Yahweh's sacred space. And in another way, and how it is in the New Testament with the New Covenant, if your heart is called, or not called, but drawn, I would say, towards these things, you, you cannot be inhabited as sacred space. The Holy Spirit does not inhabit you. That that is why we have things such, um, things such as fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit. That's two things. One, it's evidence that you are a Christian. And two, and this is sort of a, you know, how this theme is played out over and over again in the Bible. You see it everywhere. It's agricultural, meaning. It's Edenic, okay. There's this Edenic vision, the garden, that God will bring about once again. He will accomplish that, and so you use this agricultural reference all throughout the entire Bible. You know, with references such as water, you know, signifying or, for, or translating to a well-watered garden. Um, you know, you, you see all these references about trees. Vines, uh, a root or stump of Jesse, you know as it as you know as it, the phrase goes, um, there's you know rivers, and there's all these references to what you think of as a well watered garden, so that's what the reference of showing fruit of the spirit is is that you belong in this sacred space if you show evidence of your salvation. But if you do these other things, you don't belong in Yahweh's sacred space. And if you do these other things in the New Covenant, then you show that you are not sacred space. Now, of course, that is not how the ancient Israelites viewed, but this is what telegraphed sacred space to the ancient Israelites. If you commit these behaviors... You cannot be here. And here is life. Outside of it is death or estrangement from God, the true God. So, um, to kind of sum some of those ideas up in in sort of a threaded manner, you know, in ritual impurity, that's the type of impurity. The source of that is loss of bodily fluids, contact with corpses. The effect is temporary. Um, and it can be inc- it can be contagious, but you can resolute. you can show or have resolution to that by bathing or uh, waiting out a certain period. You can be fit, okay? You can be imperfect. That's what humanity is. We're imperfect. Um, the other impurity type to kind of thread that together, the source of that is sin. Okay, that's ultimately what that's saying. That's what makes you impure. Idolatry, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, murder, anything that's outside the Edenic vision. God's Edenic plan. And why do I say Edenic? Well, yeah, because God is making a new heaven, a new earth, the new Eden. But it's not just Eden in the in Genesis, and it's you know, it's not just Genesis and Revelation. You see this sort of edenic thing play out throughout the entire Bible. Like I mentioned, not only with the verbiage of agricultural type references, but you know, like the temple, for example, if you read um in the old testament how the temple was built, there's all kinds of imagery that represents the temple as the garden. Okay. So this is a continuous thing. God is eternal. His law is eternal. His law does not change. You know, you have, and this is sort of a digression, but you have all these sort of, I guess they call themselves progressive, but so-called Christians running around saying things like we need to affirm things that are not, and, and call them not sin and love people no matter what and celebrate their sin no matter what because, you know, it's the New Testament. That Old Testament stuff is, you know, it's, it's kind of outdated, right? That's sort of the idea is we need to, I've heard at least one preacher say, we need to unhitch the Old Testament. You know, and I'm sorry, but not only did Jesus Christ claim to be the entire point of the Old Testament, the Old Testament informs the New. And there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament through these themes. And through God's law, which does not change, what did change was Christ's sacrifice. Christ fulfilled the law. It's completed. But we cannot accept the payment unless we do so by faith and by believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins. That's what the gospel is. You know, the, it, it's unfortunate that you have so many modern preachers that think what evangelism is is just sort of, um, you know, you let Jesus in your heart. That's kind of the thing that you hear all the time is let let him in. And it's, it's more than that, you know. It, it's more than having the law written on your heart. It's repentance of sin. Okay, you have to preach sin if you're going to preach the gospel. So that's where these ideas come from. This is kind of continuity. But there, you know, I mentioned before that there's a larger theology that we kind of miss in the New Testament period. And that's understanding where these kind of behaviors come from other than, you know, our own depravity as humans. But these three major categories have a specific origin. And that origin is the sins of the watchers. The Genesis chapter 6 stuff. Um, And I'll have to come back to that on another episode, but it to adopt the worldview... Of the old testament to really understand where these things come from, you have to understand the Genesis chapter six, okay? What provoked the flood to begin with? Yeah, it was it was humanity's sin. But there's sins of supernatural beings that played a role here. And they're, they're continued. They're continued all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's kind of circling back a little bit. It all comes back to the Edenic vision, like I mentioned earlier, and themes versus the anti-Eden and its themes. Listen, there's a overarching, overarching theological framework all tied to the rebellion of Genesis, uh, really chapters 1 through 19. You have the fall, the flood, the Babel event, and the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. There's all these influences from supernatural beings from which we get... um, these prohibitions. You know, humanity was corrupted. But there's an there's a supernatural element there too that w- that I think doesn't often get preached about. But these these frameworks repeats all throughout the Old Testament and extends into the New Testament like I mentioned earlier. Um but w- with regard and I'll just kind of wrap this up and I'll mention all that stuff later but um, as far as the supernatural worldview of the ancient Israelites. But there's a continuity between the Levitical system and the the Levitical understanding of sacred space, God's space versus outside of his space. You know, that's why you also see wilderness examples. Wilderness was a dangerous area. And there's a lot of literary references to the what to the wilderness, because that stuff, to them, was dangerous. Inside the camp was not dangerous. And so there's parallels there. But inside the camp, inside Yahweh's sacred space, you cannot be like the outside world, okay? And so this... This... I guess difference between Yahweh's space and the world is repeated all throughout the New Testament. Just a couple of reference here. Um, like in first chap- or first John chapter two verses fifteen through seventeen, do not be like the world or the things in the world. Uh, Romans chapter twelve two, do not be conformed to this world. James chapter four verse four. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, verse twenty-four, "Cannot serve two masters." Um, and then you, you know you get all these references, like you know, captivity by philosophy and empty deceit, philosophy of the world, leaning on one's understanding versus fear of the Lord, not according to Christ, uh, like in Colossians uh, chapter two, verse eight. Uh, first John chapter three, verse thirteen: The world hates you. Um, John, of course, the themes, uh, in John chapter 15, the themes of hating you as it hates Christ, the outside world is not like, you are not, you are not to be like the world. Okay. We are different. Like, like in the inspired words of Peter, we are a separate people. We are a holy nation. And that's the point. that's ultimately the point. I mean, we kind of get caught up in some of the i some of the what seems like disproportional consequences of things like stoning someone to death uh, but y- you know you're inserting you know you're you're thinking like a westerner when you when you get sort of distracted by those things. The idea to the ancient Israelites is this difference between what's out there. How people out there act. People who follow other gods, or, as today, other idols, whose hearts are tied to things that are not of God. Versus what's here. And to be here, to be in God's sacred space, you have to be fitted. And you do not do what they do out there. Okay? We have moral prohibitions that you cannot commit. And largely because they represent what rebellious, unclean, supernatural beings did to influence humanity. So that's, you know, that kind of bridges me to the Genesis 6 kind of stuff that I mentioned earlier. And that's what I want to talk about next time. But I kept it a little bit short and sweet this time. I think I ran just 30 minutes here. I wanted to just kind of give you an idea of what Leviticus is really all about. It designates Yahweh's people as different. We do not act like they do, like they act, like the world acts. Like the, and, you know, and you kind of see that really just immediately when Yahweh sets up an official system by which we can communicate with God. Yahweh is unlike any other, any other religion. You know, you, you kind of hear this from snarky atheists all the time. Like, why do you believe? Why do you, you know, why Christianity than all the other religions? Well, you know, I'm sorry, but when you study the Bible, you see all kinds of differences. Christianity, it really is unique. It really is. You know, of course, they try to. You know, say different things that make it like every every other religion, but listen. The ultimately the ultimate way that we are unique is that over and over in the Bible we see that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot ascend on our own. There's nothing that we can do to make us worthy in front of God. And Leviticus is this first sort of real institutionalized step that God begins to communicate i am allowing a direct connection between you and me he he's forecasting that he wants a relationship a direct relationship with us you see that all the way in the Old Testament. Actually, you see it earlier than that. The very first thing that God says after the fall was, Adam, where are you? He knew where he was. But what he was, what is telegraphed to us, that God desires for us to be with him. No other religion teaches that. So that's, that's kind of my thoughts um, for Leviticus. That's really all I wanted to share this time. Uh, I may come back with a couple of things. There's just a few topical things I'd like to get to eventually that I think sort of merit their own discussion, like the dietary laws. Um, you know, what happened to Eli's sons? You, you recall that fire came down and consumed them both, and Eli... Um, Moses, you know, said something to Eli, and Eli kept quiet. You know, he had just watched his two sons get burned up. Um, things that kind of throw people a curveball, but um, yeah, I think that that wraps up what I want to get to in Leviticus. So next time, what I'd like to do is get to a little bit more theology. Um, I like the thematic kind of stuff, but um, I do want to get to some. Actual just Christian theology next time. Uh, And what I'll talk about then is the interplay between the language of election, predestination, and free will. And, of course, these are extremely hot topics. It causes all kinds of division, unnecessary division among Christians. But, you know, these are all topics that are in the Bible. We do have free will. We do have—there is— predestination and there is election but understanding what these really mean and what the text says I think is something we really need to get to free from you know traditional theological systems and outside of like confessions and creeds and I, I listen I'm not I'm not anti-creedal I'm not anti-confessional I just think that people lean too heavily on them they lean heavy on those and soft on God's word when we need to be focus primarily on what the text says and developing a system based on that. Um, Or not a system, but letting the word be the system. So, a little bit short and sweet message today. Of course, you could, there's a lot more I could say about it, but um, that's really what I wanted to say is make those kind of distinctions between ritual impurity and moral impurity. You know, kind of explain why they're there and what they mean to us. So um, if I've made that more confusing, just reach out to me. (laughs) Um, If that helps clarify, then um, I'm glad. So um, I hope you enjoy, and I'll see you next time.